Happy Friday, folks. Senior Editor Mackenzie Taylor here, and welcome back to the Texans Weekly Roundup Podcast. This week, in a very special edition, the team discusses the top 10 stories of 2022 and what we've got our eyes on going into 2023. Lots to discuss. As always, if you have questions for our team, DM us on Twitter or email us at editor at the Texan.news. Thanks for listening. Happy New Year and enjoy this episode. Well, howdy, folks. Welcome to another edition of the Texans Weekly Roundup Podcast. Happy New Year, or almost Happy New Year. We're so excited to be starting 2023, wrapping up everything we've covered this year politically in Texas, and we have so much to look forward to. So that's what this podcast is going to be all about. We're going to talk through the top stories of 2022, look forward to 2023. We're going to count how many times I misstate what year we're going into and what year we're wrapping up, because I've done that several times in preparation for this podcast. We're... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we'll try our best to be well i'll try my best y'all y'all are fine i'm the one causing tr- trouble here but i'm here with brad holly matt and hayden we're going to cover all sorts of different political topics that have been big game changers in 2022 and brad we're going to go ahead and just start off with you this year was um much calmer than last year in texas politics but still had its fair share of of spice as i like to call it it's very spicy here in texas politics the overarching theme was the election both the general and the primary, give us a recap of the results and what that means for the majority party, in this case, Republicans. Well, in November, state Republicans had a a good night, uh, especially compared with their national counterparts who had a really lackluster showing across the country. Uh, but here in Texas, it was headlined by Governor Greg Abbott's 11 point win over Democrat Beto O'Rourke. And each of the seven statewide Republicans defeated their opponents by double digit percentages. That continues Republicans uh, near 30 year dominance, um, to- total dominance of the statewide, the seven statewide positions. Um, and uh, you can include in that the, the two Senate seats um, in addition to those typical statewide um, uh, positions like the governor, lieutenant governor, and attorney general, etc. So this kind of sweep sets the table for another, um, another session of heavily GOP priority uh, items. Uh, you know, we saw in what happened in 2019 where Republicans kind of got shellacked, especially down ballot. Beto O'Rourke then running against Ted Cruz almost upset Cruz. Uh, Democrats made gains in the House. Um, I think they, was it was eight or 12 seats they flipped uh, in the House and then two in the Senate. Um, yep. And then we saw the, the kind of session that came after that, this focus on bread and butter, kitchen table issues. And that bore out the two a session where it's where two biggest um, uh, pieces of legislation were a, a limitation on the ability to raise property taxes along with a buy down of local rates, and then also a massive injection of school finance. That didn't happen in 2021. We saw a lot more focus on these GOP priority issues, specifically. Abortion were probably the, the, that and constitutional carry were the two biggest, um, pieces of legislation we saw. But this time we see another, uh, generally 
uh, Republican favorable results. And this sets the table for uh, likely what we're going to see is a debate between Republicans over how to spend the projected $27 billion surplus. You have the governor talking about using at least half of that to cut property taxes. You have the, the lieutenant governor laying out his plan, part of which is to buy down property taxes, but then a bunch of other expenditures as well, um, such as on the border, things like that. And then you have the speaker who has kind of pushed back against the idea of using half or most of the uh, of the surplus on property taxes and wanting to divert some to infrastructure spending. And so a lot of there's going to be less um, dealing with Democrats overall um, on these grander issues because Republicans will not feel like they they have to at the moment uh, due to the result of of the election. But um, you know something we'll talk about later. Democrats are still going to be a big issue, especially when it comes to committee chairs. But generally, Republicans will be able to do what they want. But that doesn't mean that there won't be infighting. There surely will be. And that'll start January 10th next year when this uh, legislature reconvenes for the 88th regular session. Oof, it's going to be fun. And to reiterate kind of your point here is we saw, you know, a lot of Republicans in Texas and across the country saying this is going to be a huge landmark year for Republicans at the ballot box in the general election with Joe Biden in the White House. They expected a huge red wave. And really the only places where there was uh, pretty dominant Republican wins was in Texas and Florida, right? And yep. Texas had even less um, to show than Florida. So we'll see what that means going forward. I'm curious what that means in terms of leverage for Republicans when they actually do convene in the legislature, how they'll leverage that to get their priorities done and what those priorities will be because conservatives and Republicans have very different opinions of what should be yeah. accomplished. So, And we, we saw um, in the House, the Republicans gained two seats. They lost one, gained, uh, flipped three for a net gain of two. And in the Senate, uh, they nearly took one of the seats in the Rio Grande Valley and they, they flipped one in Senate district 10 up in North Texas. So, uh, each chamber has gained a slight amount of, of seats. Uh, but they certainly didn't lose any like they did, uh, four years ago. And so again, that will set the table for a lot of Republican on Republican jockeying and, um, how it shakes out. We don't know, but it's exciting that it's almost here. We've been waiting for session for a while. Personally, I prefer that to elections, but um, yeah, it's almost here. Absolutely. I'm stoked. It'll be fun. We love some uh, drama. That's the business we're in at this point. Bring on the drama. Thank you, Bradley. <laughs> Hayden, we're going to pivot here big time. Texans suffered an immeasurable tragedy earlier this year. Give us an overview of some of the key events since the Robb Elementary School shooting in Uvalde. May 24, 2022 will be remembered as a day of unfathomable horror in Texas history. There were 19 school children and two teachers gunned down at an elementary school in Uvalde in their classrooms by an 18-year-old who had attended the school as a child. He used an AR-15 AR style rifle. And since then, there has been discussion about the law enforcement response or a lack thereof. The response by those in charge that day has been roundly criticized. Colonel Steve McCraw condemned the law enforcement reaction as an abject failure. And he stated that it went against everything 
law enforcement uh, are taught in terms of responding to mass shootings, especially uh, the doctrine that has been developed since the Columbine massacre in Colorado back in 2000, excuse me, back in 1997. There was a delay of 77 minutes uh, between the beginning of the shooting and when the 18-year-old perpetrator was finally gunned down by a team of Border Patrol agents who went into the school uh, as they had hundreds of officers more or less waiting around uh, outside and inside the building. It it was later revealed that uh, another official with the state police had even attempted to tell them to stand down as they were responding. So that officer is under investigation, as many other officers who responded on that day were, and uh, Colonel McCraw and specifically Senator Roland Gutierrez have uh, been among the vocal critics of those who responded that day. Uh, Texas Legislative Committee uh, condemned what they called egregiously poor decision-making and published a report outlining many of the things that went wrong in terms of school security and the law enforcement response on that day. And uh, the focus, of course, should be on the unspeakable loss of life and the um, the grief that all of those families are going through, especially during the holiday season. Absolutely. And Hayden, you've covered this from the start and we appreciate your coverage. It's been very um, unsensationalized and you've done a wonderful job of making sure that um, folks know what happened. On that note, obviously, after a tragedy like this, the conversation pivots to what can be done in terms of policy and legislation, especially in the political world. Going into 2023, what are some legislative changes that could be adopted in the legislative session? I mentioned Senator Gutierrez, who represents the district that includes Uvalde. He has proposed a compensation fund that would include hundreds of millions of dollars for victims and and survivors of the shooting, those injured, family members of those who were killed, and others who were impacted on that day directly by the massacre. He designed this bill to circumvent a more traditional process of securing a judgment in court. There have been those who have said that gun manufacturers should be held liable for this, but I believe this is not necessarily tailored for that, but to compensate for the lack of response by law enforcement on that day and the lack of coordination and leadership shown particularly by Chief Pete Arredondo, who was fired in August over this incident, over this tragedy, this massacre, mass murder. He has, Gutierrez also said on Sunday that he would propose requiring active shooter training for all law enforcement officers in Texas, which is currently not required under the law unless they are working in a school. So his bill has not been filed yet, but it will, according to him, require active shooter training for all certified law enforcement in Texas. And then, of course, there are the more politically perilous uh, items where there's going to be obviously more disagreement. He has proposed a prohibition on what he calls assault weapons, in other words, AR-style rifles, semi-automatic weapons, and uh, similar weapons. So the gun control debate will almost certainly be hashed out next session. Even if not on the House floor and Senate floor, it will be uh, hashed out in the court of public opinion. 
Absolutely. And again, folks, this is one of those things where we talk through the top 10 stories of the year. And this doesn't even deserve to be called a story, but it does deserve our um, reverence and attention. So Hayden, thank you so much for covering that for us. Matthew, we are going to do our best to pivot to different topics now. Um, A huge story, one of the biggest this year, even just nationally, was the U.S. Supreme Court um, just dominating headlines with a landmark decision overturning overturning, um, another controversial (laughs) landmark decision. What all has transpired since the court overturned Roe versus Wade? The high court revisited abortion rights in reviewing a Mississippi state law that banned abortions after 15 weeks, and in doing so, overturned the 1973 opinion Roe v. Wade, uh, which set off a firestorm from pro-choice activists and also set off uh, lots of celebrations from pro-life activists who had been advocating for the precedent to be overturned for many years. The ruling, Dobbs versus Jackson, allowed uh, Texas's state laws prohibiting abortion uh, that were on the books since before the Roe ruling to go back into effect immediately, uh, as well as triggered a 30-day countdown for the recently enacted Human Right Life Protection Act, which ultimately went into effect uh, the next month. Political spectators wondered for some time what the impact the decision would have on Republicans in the uh, past uh, November midterm elections. And it turns out um, not much in Texas. Uh, Republicans still uh, retained control of all statewide offices with healthy margins and uh, also maintained healthy majorities in both legislative chambers of the Texas legislature. Uh, one notable data point that has come out since uh, the ruling was handed down back in June is that abortions performed in Texas almost dropped Im- tremendously immediately. Uh, in June, uh, when the ruling was issued, there were nearly 2,600 abortions performed, whereas in July, there were only 68, which represented a 97% drop. Wow. Well, thank you so much for your coverage, Matt, of that and of that issue. And we'll continue to watch what legislators do. And I'm sure Democrats in the House and Senate, once we convene in January, will have their eyes on the prize in this regard, regardless of whether or not they have the power legislatively to enact any sort of um, policy in, in response to Roe v. Wade being under, uh, overturned. It still is something that they have talked at great lengths about during campaign season. And so we'll see but what proposals. It'll definitely move. be an issue this legislative session. Absolutely. It'll be interesting to watch. Well, thank you for your coverage, Matt. We appreciate it. Hayden, we're coming back to you. Some conservatives are gearing up for a fight over influence in the Texas House committees. What are some highlights of the controversy over committee chairmanships? Probably some of the most powerful positions in our state are the chairmanships of committees in the Texas legislature because they shepherd different proposals that end up becoming law. They also have the ability to strike down proposals that they dislike by placing them far down on the calendar or refusing to take them up for a vote. So it's natural that there would be people who care about this issue. And uh, Republicans believe that the practice, I say Republicans, a handful of Republicans believe that the practice of appointing Democrats to committee chairs 
scuttles, gives Democrats the ability to scuttle their legislative priorities. And this has been a sore point for many staunch conservatives, uh, in particularly the Texas Republican Party. And uh, it has been something of a tradition over the years for the speaker to appoint a few members of the opposing party to uh, committee chairmanships. And a notable example of this was Harold Dutton, who presided over the House Education Committee in the prior, in the prior legislature. He famously sided with Republicans in a way when he scheduled the, the bill on um, participation in sports based on biological sex versus gender identity when he brought that bill up for a vote and angered those within his own party. But still Republicans believe that it, some Republicans believe that uh, Democrats should not have that type of influence and that only those in the majority party should occupy the committee chairmanships. And the some of those conservatives are laying the groundwork to have that debate on the first day of session. So let's talk about that. And I will say it's also worth noting last year when the there was that quorum bust over the Election Integrity Act of 2021, as Republicans coined um, the term, when Democrats fled the state in order to try and um, just filibuster the bill essentially without the actual term filibuster being accurate here. But that's what they did. They left the state in order to stop the passage of that bill, that GOP backed election reform bill. And some of those who did flee were, were chairman. And so that's where some of this discussion is coming back to the forefront is, okay, how do we respond in an event like that where legislators leave the state um, and leave their posts during a special session? Um, could, back to the what you were talking about, about fights on the House floor, could this issue of Democrats and committee chairmanships be intertwined in other fights on the House floor? I, I will say it could be, but there's not a great likelihood that it will. And I'll add to our prior discussion that the Republican, the state Republican Party has said that only 18 Republicans in the House have committed to uh, opposing Democratic committee chairs or supporting a rule that would preclude that. And 18, put a, put a, a mark on that number because there was a vote in the Texas House Republican Caucus over Speaker Dade Phelan's candidacy for Speaker and whether or not the House Caucus was going to support him again and that passed overwhelmingly 76 to 6. And so there's a gap there between the number of people who have said they would oppose uh, c- Democrat committee chairs and those who are uh, opposing Speaker Phelan's candidacy. So obviously, there are not a great number who are making this a do or die issue for them in terms of whether they'll support Phelan. And Tony Tenderholt, a Republican from Arlington, is running against Phelan and has committed uh, personally to us that he will, um, I say personally to us, he stated in an interview with us that he would take his candidacy to the House floor. And uh, while there are uh, these members who say that they are going to oppose this practice, uh, clearly it's it's not necessarily an issue, um, a deal breaker for them in, in terms of supporting Phelan. So this could be uh, a floor fight on the first day of session, but the numbers just aren't there at this point uh, for them to mount a significant challenge to Phelan or the practice of, commit- of supporting Democratic committee chairs. And uh, it would take something 
monumentally um, significant politically uh, for that to change in the next couple of weeks or however many days we have until January 10. And I think it's Certainly it's also worth me. noting oh. that um, we've seen, especially after the quorum break last year, we've seen some changes of opinion on this topic. Um, you know, when this floor debate happened in the rules argument uh, last session, uh, a couple of days after the speaker vote, we saw Representative Briscoe Kane, one of the most conservative members in the state house, get up and passionately argue in favor of preserving uh, the practice of appointing Democrats as committee chairs. And in his argument as stated on the floor was that, you know, we don't want to be like Washington DC where they own, where the majority party only has, um, appoints committee chairs. And then, um, they see that at least as, as Kane said, see that as more dysfunctional. Um, DC is widely seen as more dysfunctional. Um, and so I don't know, what uh, specifically Briscoe Kane's uh, change has been on that. But uh, for many of these people, I, I would, it would be hard for me to believe that anyone that changed did not consider the quorum break that just happened as part of the reason that they shifted their position on the issue. That was such a big occurrence and um, multiple of the people who fled the state were committee chairs. And so um, and ironically, they went to D.C. <laughs> so, yes, yes. That was, if you remember the reactions from a lot of political watchers, commentators, news articles and everything like that. But back during the day, you know, everybody kind of noticed that, that the whole narrative of, of distributing a proportional amount of Democrat chairs to Democrats is we don't function like Washington. And then whenever they fled to Washington and shut everything down, it just kind of um, that narrative got a really interesting reaction from everybody that said, well, I have, have we not crossed that threshold and where's the guarantee that they don't do this again next go around. So a lot of interesting elements in that saga. Yeah. And, you know, to, to add the other side of this argument is that, the speakership itself is a numbers game, right? You need, uh, was it 76 votes in support to secure the speakership yep. and, uh, uh, Republicans going into the next session will have about, uh, 10, 11 extra members. And so if you look back in, in history, uh, of the ledge a few years ago about, uh, how, uh, Joe Strauss came to power, you know, he had a band of 11, 12, Republicans join all the Democrats. And so this is a political game of, of trying to ensure your governing majority. Part of that, um, I'm sure a very uh, useful tool in that is offering uh, a committee chair to a Democrat and in return for their support as, as speaker. And so that's the other aspect of this. That's why these two things, these two issues are so tied together, the speakership and the democratic chairs. Um, but there is already more support for banning Democrat chairs among the members than there was last time. So um, we'll see where they fall on, you know, when they vote next, next year. And by the way, I need to correct myself. It was 78 to six. I think I said 76 to six. Oh, got it. In, in the caucus vote. Right in the caucus vote. So it was 78 for Phelan, uh, six opposed to Phelan. This issue is incredibly important specifically to grassroots conservatives, those most involved in the political process in Texas. 
they know this issue in and out. It is something that legislators will receive calls about to their office. So I do think it is safe to say that if this were to go to a vote on the during the rules fight and the session, more Republicans would come out in favor of this issue of banning committee chairs uh, or banning yep. Democrat committee chairs that have pledged to support it uh, publicly now. So that's part of the argument why people like Representative Tinderhold is, well, let's just get it to a vote. Of course, Democrats say, please just allow us to represent our districts. Please allow us positions of power. We understand this is a Republican majority, but we want to be able to do our jobs as representatives from our districts. So that's, I mean, arguments all over the place. But yeah. do you have one more thing before yeah. you move on? Yeah, we, we, we've already seen um, grassroots individuals, organizations promise primary fights against uh, Republicans who do not vote to ban Democratic committee chairs. Uh, the the Patriot Mobile PAC, who dumped a lot of money into school board races this year and was very successful in putting conservatives on school boards, they ha- they strongly hinted that they'll be um, you know doing the same, but in Texas legislative races on this one issue. And so the twenty twenty four. Uh, prefacing the 2024 race is already occurring uh, on this issue and it will continue. Certainly. Okay. Well, we could talk about that all day long. We love the infighting in the Texas House. Can you not tell? Matthew, we are going to come to you. Speaking of grassroots conservatives in Texas, this past summer, roughly 10,000 Republican delegates decided on the state GOP convention in Houston. uh, And one Republican lawmaker uh, didn't receive the most cordial welcome over a piece of gun control legislation that he had been supporting. Tell us the details. Senator John Cornyn got booed rather loudly, if you can imagine how loud uh, some 10,000 people booing can be. Uh, But the boos were motivated by a piece of bipartisan gun control legislation being championed by Senator Cornyn that had a a few provisions that did not sit well with his fellow Republicans, including funding, uh, federal funding that would go to encourage states to adopt red flag style laws. Uh, these are this is legislation that would allow law enforcement to, without a warrant, um, go in and uh, confiscate firearms from uh, somebody's possession um, over over different allegations. Uh, the The legislation was ultimately signed uh, into law later by President Joe Biden, uh, who praised the bipartisan support that the that the legislation received. Um, but uh, yeah, for those who were in Houston uh, this this past June, um, it was it was definitely the the sight to behold over the policy differences between the Republican delegates and Senator Cornyn. Uh, he did receive a little bit of uh, support whenever he got off onto some other topics, uh, managing to shift the conversation over to his success getting uh, Trump-nominated federal judges confirmed in the Senate and uh, helping further some pro-life issues. Uh, so, so that was met, uh, uh, accepted by, by the delegates. But um, overall, uh, they weren't very happy over the gun control issue. Certainly. And to of note, particularly Governor Abbott did not attend the convention on site. He had a an offsite welcome party for delegates that he did sponsor. Um, I don't believe it was directly affiliated with the state party, but I cannot remember. Somebody correct me if I'm wrong on that. But um, some folks no, it was were not. concerned. Okay. Some folks were concerned that the governor didn't show up to convention because he was again, had a tough primary challenge and it would be difficult to face delegates. 
Um, but, you know, Senator Cornyn showed up and he was also in a yeah. tough position politically. And so that was fascinating to watch who showed up, who was willing to talk to delegates. You had crowd favorites like Attorney General Ken Paxton there, Senator Ted Cruz, who are beloved by these kinds of Republicans in Texas. Um, so interesting have, to watch. I have to, go, go ahead. I have to give Senator Cornyn the credit for, for showing up and taking the beating. Um, I don't think I could have stood up there. <laughs> but oh uh, and it was kind of interesting, too, because the next speaker was a, a Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton who received overwhelming applause uh, from delegates. And he took a little bit of a, uh, of a swipe at Senator Cornyn saying, you know, if, if the Congress passes any kind of unconstitutional gun control legislation, he'll, he'll be the first to file suit on behalf of the state of Texas and get it struck down. So it was kind of interesting Absolutely. to see a little bit Those of uh, competitiveness going on up there. Those two have certainly gone gone at it before, so it's fun to watch political again the drama. We live for the drama. Um, thank you, Matt, for covering that, Bradley. Let's talk uh, to you about another issue here. It's been a very hot topic with abortion passed the legislative limelight after Roe and the legislature's laws passed last year. The social issue spotlight has moved largely to child gender modification. What's occurred on that issue this year? So due to the legislature failing to pass a ban of child gender modification surgeries and procedures last year, the attention moved to the executive branch last August after session ended. Um, but during the whole quorum bus fight and uh, this issue was not one of those placed on the special session uh, agenda. Um, but last August, Governor Al Abbott asked the Department of Family and Protective Services to determine whether gender modification surgeries qualify as child abuse under state code. Um, the agency uh, began investigating uh, or began evaluating the question and said, yes, eventually these surgeries uh, themselves constitute child abuse and began a few different investigations into such instances. Um, but after an AG opinion, it, this and then over the, the last par portion of the year and into the next year, into this year, the question over whether puberty blockers applied to that standard as well was kind of being kicked back and forth and, and feet, was, feet, feet were being dragged um, on all sides of that. Um, but eventually, the Office of the Attorney General, uh, Ken Paxton, released an opinion, non-binding opinion, uh, backing the proposition that it could be extended to puberty-blocking drugs. And since then, those investigations have uh, extended to those instances as well. There are a couple ongoing lawsuits um, against the executive branch for this action. And currently, GOP legislators are regrouping for their push to ban the practice entirely next year. Um, last session, we saw uh, the House version of this die at the end of a deadline because it was placed quite far down the, the calendar um, after kind of lingering in committee for a little bit. Um, and then we saw the second version, which came from the Senate die as well um i can't remember if that was if that occurred on the first quorum bust when house members walked out um, i don't think so because i don't think it ultimately passed the passed the house so it had to have been the earlier deadline um to pass senate bills through the house 
but uh, it's going to be an issue again. There've already been multiple different versions of this, um, this topic filed. Um, We saw just the standard ban. We saw uh, something prohibiting doctors from getting malpractice insurance for these procedures. And then another thing we wrote about this week um, or when this is out, it will have been last week. uh, Representative Brian Harrison filed a state Hyde Amendment version of the Hyde Amendment, which would prohibit uh, tax dollars going towards paying for these procedures and treatments. And so um, they're, they're coming at it from many different directions. And this will, con- especially given the fact that like abortion and con carry were already passed, they're now no longer going to be on the legislature's plate, um, at least to the degree that they were last year. Uh, this has a lot more potential for gathering some legislative oxygen. Um, does that mean it'll pass the finish line? I'm not sure, but uh, there will be many a, a floor fight on this issue, especially in the House. Um, like I said, we've already seen this this kind of legislation pass the Senate, but the real battleground is is in the House and whether um, those supporting it can gather enough votes um, to push it through. Absolutely. Thank you, Bradley, for covering that for us. We appreciate it. Hayden, it would not be our weekly roundup podcast in any way, shape or form without talking to you about the border. The crisis peaked in 2022 this year with a record amount of illegal immigration. What were some of the highlights of the crisis and particularly Republican response, Republicans response as they are the ones in power? Well, there were more enforcement encounters with illegal immigrants in fiscal year 2022, which ended in September than there ever was in any year prior. There were 2.38 million encounters along the southern border, and that includes 2.21 million arrests between ports of entry by border police. There is no way to possibly summarize everything that's gone on with the border in just a few minutes, but I think a few highlights are, uh, first, Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas virtually forced out his chief of Uh, Border Customs and Border Protection, Chris Magnus, forced him to either resign or be fired. It was a whirlwind over the course of a couple of days. Magnus went from defending his record and saying he had no intention of leaving to uh, handing in his resignation more or less the following morning. So Mayorkas having to push out his CBP commissioner is a huge statement of where he personally believes uh, the border crisis is and how he believes it has been handled. Um, Governor Abbott invoking uh, provisions in the Constitution of the state and U.S. Constitution concerning invasion uh, is a major escalation in his response to the crisis. Operation Lone Star has resulted in 333,000 or more arrests of illegal immigrants to be referred uh, by federal authorities. That's according to the most recent update on Friday. And more than 14,000 have been bussed out of state to various cities that Abbott has dubbed sanctuary cities and that themselves uh, pledge to uh, not arrest people on the basis of being in the country illegally or provide them housing and shelter all grouped together what Republicans would characterize as sanctuary city policies. Uh, Most recently, 
the Texas military department sent 400 troops directly to El Paso to respond to the surge that that area is experiencing currently because of uh, the Title 42 issues. And uh, all of this, of course, is on the um, against the backdrop of Mayorkas saying that Republicans are the ones uh, contributing to the idea that the border is open by constantly beating the drum of there being an open border under President Biden. So there's plenty of finger pointing as to who's responsible for this surge of illegal immigration uh, and uh, plenty of conditions abroad that are contributing to it as well. Is there any debate at this point, Hayden, that there is a crisis at the border? Is that still something that is being debated between political parties at large, or is it pretty much uh, agreed upon at this point? I don't think anyone denies that this much illegal immigration creates a need for people to step up and provide for all of these people who are coming here with no job, no savings, no necessities. I don't think anyone disagrees. I think the disagreement is now who's responsible for taking care of these individuals, of these people who, and many of them children who are coming across the border. And uh, these and big city mayors would say that the whole country needs to do its part. Uh, Republicans would are focused on deterrence and securing the border and stopping the flow of illegal immigration. Whereas I would say Democrats are more focused on finding ways to provide for the people who are coming here um, and improving conditions in other countries. What the efficacy of that, of course, is is grounds for debate. But no, I don't think there's any debate um, that the way this current situation is, in fact, um, a crisis, at the very least, a humanitarian crisis. Um, But of course, at worst, uh, uh, opening the country to uh, a risk of terrorism as well. Certainly. Thank you for that. What role have federal judges played in the border crisis? Just at large, generally speaking, what role have they have they played in this issue? Because of all the litigation uh, over Trump's policies and Biden's policies, they have really directed uh, policy on the border because they have issued injunctions that have applied nationwide. Most recently, Chief Justice John Roberts made the final call on Title 42 being continued as opposed to being ended, which is going to immediately make a huge difference because everyone agreed that there was going to be a surge of illegal border crossings. The Department of Homeland Security acknowledged that and warned uh, everyone about that. So federal judges with their uh, injunctions and with their decisions that they've made and lawsuits, many of which have been filed by Ken Paxton, have had a major influence on immigration policy um, in the past couple of years. And before that, but especially the past couple of years. <laughs> well, Hayden, you've been an incredible um, addition to the team just reporting on this. We appreciate you taking the time. Folks, if you have been listening to our podcast all of this year. We're so grateful that you've been listening and 2022 has been an incredible year of news to keep up with. We would ask that if you have not subscribed to The Texan, go to the Texan.news right now, make it your New Year's resolution to subscribe to a news outlet that does not have advertisers, does not have big money donors, and make sure to have news that pertains to you and your pocketbook each and every day that will not be hostile to your worldview. We take this very seriously. I try to make sure these boys are fed 
that Holly and Kim can provide for their children. Not to tug at the heartstrings, but I'm tugging at the heartstrings. Make sure to go to the Texan.news, subscribe today. You can subscribe for $9 monthly or an annual subscription is $7.50 per month. Um, that's as much of my coffee costs, <laughs> which I go and get multiple times a week. So folks, we just encourage you to go and make sure that you subscribe. We appreciate your support. If you're listening, we so appreciate that as well. That helps us each and every week continue to deliver the news that we care so much about. Um, but subscriptions is really how we uh, make sure that we're able to provide for our team and continue to report on news 10 years from now. So thanks for listening. And we hope you go to the Texanet News and subscribe today. Holly, we're coming back to you or not back to you. This is your first time talking on this podcast. I'm so glad. Welcome, welcome. It's great. Um, it's great to be here. <laughs> um, let's talk about Harris County. Trouble in paradise for Lena Hildalgo. Uh, she won her re-election. She's the Harris County judge there locally, but there's an issue still looming. Tell us about what's going on down there. Sure. And this is an issue that started back in 2021, where we found this, uh, there was this contract that the county awarded for COVID vaccine outreach for $11 million. And it caught our attention because it was awarded to a one person firm. And the one person who owned this kind of data analytics firm was very well connected Democrat. She had been the deputy campaign manager for Commissioner Adrian Garcia when he ran for Houston mayor. Uh, this woman had also worked for the Hillary Clinton presidential campaign in 2016 and was a data analyst for the Democrat National Committee. So it did seem interesting that she would get this COVID vaccine outreach contract. Uh, we are uh, one of the entities that started to look into this as, long, as well as uh, Fox 26 here in Houston. And uh, we started to discover there's a little more to the story. There were some interesting emails that went back and forth. There were uh, some scores sheets that showed that actually a, a more qualified vendor may have been the UT Health Science Center. They actually uh, bid at a lower cost than this woman's firm, which incidentally is um, Felicity Perea's um, Elevate Strategies. But uh, there was more to it than that. So the, the contract got canceled, but the district attorney's office assembled a grand jury. There was an investigation. The Texas Rangers were involved. At one point, they executed search warrants and seized a wide variety of communications from Lena Hidalgo's staffers uh, who were involved in, in creating this, this work. Um, and what came out afterwards led to the felony indictments of three Hidalgo staffers. Now, that was all very busy news last spring and over the summer to some extent, but it did quiet down before the election. Part of the reason for that was that there were accusations from Lena Hidalgo's office that the investigation and the indictments were politically motivated, although the district attorney in Harris County is also a fellow Democrat. Uh, but still, there's a, there's kind of a friction between the district attorney and Lena Hidalgo. And so that was, you know, kind of bandied about. There were some competing motions for sanctions in the courts and so forth. But there really hasn't been any action. Uh, since about last summer. However, we are expecting there to be a trial at some point, And there are uh, some speculation, there is some speculation that uh, Lena Hidalgo herself could be indicted in relation to this contract. Uh, she herself announced publicly at one point that she expected to be indicted. And what's at stake here is that it seems that Hidalgo and her staff may have created this project 
for this uh, crony, if you will, this uh, this Democrat compatriot of theirs. Um, and then after the scoring took place, they may have moved to disqualify the UT Health Science Center uh, so that they would not be able to obtain that contract. So I think that we will expect to see some more and more developments in that story in the upcoming uh weeks, perhaps sometime in the new year, but that does continue to to loom over Harris County. Now, Lena Hidalgo did win her reelection, um, so she's not, uh, you know, not fighting that on the campaign trail, but it looks like something that will still be discussed in the courtroom. Certainly. And that was an incredibly contentious race as well. You're talking about one of the biggest races of the year was the Harris County judges race for the general election. It was absolutely wild. Alex Delmarle Miller raised so much money. They're booking uh, challenger to Hildago. I can't remember, but she outraised most statewide candidates. She did. And she ended up raising more than $8 million in that race, which really raised a lot of eyebrows across the state. Uh, In the end, it wasn't enough to get her across the finish line, as far as we can tell. Lena Hidalgo still won with about 1% of the vote. There was also a a third party write-in candidate that took, you know, I think 0.1% of the vote, not enough to, to sway things. But, uh, you know, the dust is still settling here in Harris County over the elections. We had a lot of election issues. Uh, we did see some judicial candidates file election contests. I don't think there's enough of a uh, vote margin there to bring the county judges race into play in any of those contests, but uh, there's still a lot that can happen. Certainly. Folks all over the state care about Harris County because they see trends similar to Har- that are happening in Harris County uh, in their areas. So, Holly, we so appreciate your coverage. And this bleeds so much into the, what we talk about on the state level in terms of policy that's talked about during the legislative session. So thanks for your coverage. Always a delight to have you on the podcast. Bradley, following up on the first topic you discussed on this podcast, what does the election mean for the minority party, Texas Democrats? So... <sighs> The Democrats did not have a good night here in Texas. Um, They managed to keep two of the three South Texas congressional seats that were getting a lot of attention. But when you look at the partisan leaning of those three, the results of them were not really all that surprising. The two the Democrats won were heavily leaning Democrats after redistricting and the one that went to the Republicans leaned their way after redistricting. So there was not a lot of surprise the, for the Democrats. And the, um, what, what ultimately happened was more of the same from the last 30 years. They were locked out of any of the statewide races or positions um, like they have been for nearly 30 years. They lost, as I said, lost a couple, had a net loss in the House and lost one seat in the Senate. Um, And so this kind of sends them back out into the political wilderness where they've kind of made a home for themselves of late. And they're going to have to now try and take stock of the race, figure out what went wrong for them, which with how bad it was is probably quite a lot. And the democratic party's postmortem analysis that they put out, it placed the blame of the feat at the, uh, of redistricting uh, quote voter suppression, um, tying that to the, the election reforms that passed last year. 
um, and a lack of national democratic investment. That last one we saw uh, Beto O'Rourke talk about a lot in his message following Georgia's outcome. But the one thing that they kind of uh, actually provided some self-inflection on, self-reflection on, was the, as they described it, their, their own poor border security messaging that cost them, um, especially in, in uh, at least one house seat down in the Rio Grande Valley. Um, it cost them in the seat, the other, one of the other state house seats that touches down there uh, that actually that, that is represented by Ryan Gian, um, who flipped parties last year. And that was the one, seemingly the one thing that, that was blaming it, that was placing some blame at, um, at their own feet rather than at these other things. And so maybe we'll see a development there. We saw Henry Cuellar, who is one of the most um, outspoken Democrats on the situation at the border. Um, he won by quite a, a decent margin. And um, regardless, this is, this is just another cycle like has existed for the last uh, like uh, almost three decades now. And if Democrats ever really want to make Texas truly competitive, like they've been chanting for the last uh, four years since the beta wave in 2018, they're going to have to uh, change some things up. And uh, for them, you know, the shot clock uh, ticking down to the, the 2024 election has already begun. Uh, we've seen this on the Republican side that Matt's about to talk about, but apply it to the Democrats as well. And not just at the presidential level, um, they'll have a, a U.S. Senate seat up in uh, 2024. there will be Ted Cruz's seat, whether he chooses to run or not, we don't know, but um, are they going to go with Beto again, or are they going to find somebody else, whether it's Julian Castro or somebody else waiting in the wings? They have got a lot to figure out. And maybe this, the result of this election, when they're, Democratic compatriots had a lot of success across the nation and they did not have a lot of success here in Texas. Maybe this will be, um, you know, a, a kick in the rear end for them to try and figure that out. But, you know, it's been said before, too. So uh, a lot to play for in 24 and Democrats are really going to have to take a good look in the mirror on it. I think it's fair to say Texas Democrats are highly energized. They're becoming more well-organized. Their bench is just not that deep. Republicans have so many different folks to draw from. They've been in power for so much longer. It means yep. it attracts candidates who may have um, better skills or resumes to the table to run for even low-level offices, whereas Democrats have a harder time with that because the attraction is not there. It's harder to win in Texas. Yep. And so a lot of well-connected Democrats are kind of starting to wake up, starting to run, but the bench is just not as deep for those Democrats in Texas. So it'll be interesting to see how quickly that changes. How you know It'll take a while, I think, for, for Texas to turn blue if that were to happen. Um, interesting podcast we recorded a while ago with Derek Ryan, a Republican consultant and uh, data analyst, has a lot of good information about what that would look like. So make sure to go check that out. But thank you, Bradley, for that coverage. Speaking of 2024, Matthew, we are coming to you. A very major candidate has already announced for the presidential election in 2024. Tell us about this news. You in the docket call it huge news. So why don't you uh, give us a little bit of a rundown as to why that might be the word that is most appropriate for this scenario not very subtle there matt huh 
<laughs> well, I was trying to think of a uh, a good uh, uh, give give you, give y'all a little bit of a, a clue uh, <laughs> on, on the I segue. Love it. Uh, so, former President Donald Trump is the first to officially toss his hat into the twenty twenty four bid for the White House. Uh, the former president will seek to serve a second term uh, if he is successful. Uh, his announcement was welcomed by his former Texas campaign chair, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. Uh, interestingly, the Texas Republican Party did a poll of Republican voters that showed Trump has a rising contender in the GOP primary if um, if if he is opposed, and that is in rising uh, star Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who's closing the gap and taking a close second place position. Um, DeSantis has let, has yet to make any formal announcements, although he hasn't completely ruled it out. Uh, also, President Joe Biden has not announced his 2024 plans from what I've seen, but it'll be interesting to see uh, if the country has a 2020 rematch shaping up in 2024. Absolutely. Going to be a spicy time and Repo- Republicans in Texas seem very uh, split on the issue and more favorable to DeSantis than I think we would have thought a year ago uh, compared to Trump. So it'll be very Again, the drama, very fun to watch how that all breaks down if the Florida governor does, in fact, throw his hat in the ring as he is expected to. Gentlemen, Holly, let's jump ahead to talking about what we have our eyes on going into 2023 in Texas politically. What are we watching? What's, what are we looking forward to? We're turning the corner here and entering an entirely new year. New stories are coming up. Bradley, what do you have your eyes on and are watching specifically going into the new year? Well, I already mentioned the twenty-seven projected $27 billion surplus that is going to lead to a lot of um, a lot of fights on many different issues over how to spend that money. And actually, it might be uh, the comptroller said the other day that he's going to have an updated estimate in, on January 9th, the day before the legislative session starts. And so it may actually he told me that it may actually grow. So that's even more money uh, potentially. Um, I think one thing that's really developing is this fight over ESG. Um, that's something I've been following. Uh, the legislature passed a bill last session, uh, that kind of took aim at this. It's the environmental, social and governance movement within, um, the financial world. Um, it's, it's a movement that is trying to move capital away from fossil fuel sources of energy and towards, other things such as mainly wind and solar, um, when strictly talking about, you know, um, generation of power. And so, uh, that turn, that trickles into all different kinds of things. Um, but the social as well applies to uh, non energy related stuff, such as there's, um, a series of, uh, of, uh, board shareholder proposals at a few companies that tried to push back on abortion restrictions like occurred in Texas. And so this spans a lot. Energy is just kind of the headliner of this. But we saw last week um, uh, State Senator Brian Hughes and the State Affairs Committee in the Senate 
question, BlackRock, which is the world's largest portfolio manager, and a couple other companies, um, including the uh, the state pension systems um, proxy voting service over their policies and how the how things have developed to where they are. This is not going away. This is probably going to be one of the 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 keynote issues, I think, in the session, at least among the people that uh, they're inclined to care about this. Uh, you know, it's not as easily understood as abortion. But uh, it, as I said, it touches abortion, uh, but it extends well beyond that and especially holds a lot of implications for the state's oil and gas industry. So that's something I think is going to be a big, a big issue um, generally, politically, where the chips fall on these on things like the, the chair vote, uh, the speaker's vote, um, the relationship between. Lieutenant Governor Patrick and Speaker Phelan. Do they just try and throw a bunch of legislation at each other that neither of them want to deal with? Uh, as we saw happen last year. I think there's a good chance of that. Um, where do they find compromise on? It's going to be a very hairy session. And uh, I think a ripe for conflict in many different areas. I'm game for it. Bring it on. I think it'll be fun. It's so funny to me. And this is kind of what I'm to piggyback off of what you said, looking forward to uh, watching in 2023 is how these Republicans in power either work together or go to bat against each other on these big issues. Um, Phelan and Patrick have both proven to be incredibly different leaders in terms of what they prioritize, regardless of being a part of the same political party. And the governor kind of, uh, I'd say he kind of straddles both chambers of trying yeah. to figure out where he'll actually, um, you know, put his political capital. His emergency items at the beginning of the session will be incredibly telling as to where he thinks um, his time and effort and behind the scenes calls of, hey, you know, calling up members on the House floor saying you better vote for this. Like those things yeah. happen. And where will that time be spent from yeah. the governor? Um, and which side will he kind of uh, be more willing to engage with? Um, in terms of the House and the Senate will be fascinating. And we saw, you know, four years ago, is it four years ago now? Almost four years ago when Speaker Bonin was the Speaker of the Texas House, there was, it was a called the Kumbaya session. I was right? just about to say so, that. You saw so much collaboration. You know, Brad, that's my, that's my job. If I don't steal yeah. your thunder once a day, then I'm not doing my job. But um, the collaboration between the chambers, between Speaker Bonin and Lieutenant Governor Patrick was unbelievable compared to previous sessions when Speaker Strauss was in power. And, um, I and compare that to last session, totally different. Yes, so. 100%. Um, which we have a lot of info on that as well. But the behind the scenes bartering on some of these really big issues like constitutional carry, like this was this was big stuff. And yeah. it'll be fascinating to see where the chambers come down on the, on the, you know, those issues this session and who decides to expend more political capital to get their items across the line. So we'll see. And just who has their members in order, right? Like a lot of members take pride in not going uh, uh, along with their uh, their chamber's leader, particularly in the House, like there's a lot of um, independence and fun to be had in that regard of House floor fights. And the Senate yep. is far more planned and far more strategized. Well, and uh, folks fall in line with the lieutenant governor. Well, I mean, you, you mentioned the Senate is is far more lockstep behind Patrick. Well, especially now that that Seliger, Kel Seliger, is no longer going to be in the Senate. He was the chief thorn yep. in, in Patrick's side uh, for at A least Republican. two sessions. Yeah, Republican. Um, and so, you know, I remember my first day on the job, 
uh, Seliger was, uh, um, did they, did they call it a filibuster? He was giving a very long talk and he was about to, or he was considering whether to tank the, uh, the Lieutenant governor's, uh, plan to reduce the, um, uh, the supermajority level. And, um, or maybe I'm confusing that with with debate over the over SP two and whether to allow that. Regardless, that was my first day on the job here in Texas, seeing Seliger go at Lieutenant Governor. And so, who is, does anybody take that role um, from the Republicans in the in the Senate? I probably not, but I, you know, stranger things have happened. I'm sure. Well, Kevin Sparks you know, in West Texas has replaced Seliger and is obviously and publicly far more amenable to Patrick's um, style than oh, Seliger yes. was. So at least in that seat, we kind of know where that's headed. Right. Hayden, what about you? What are you watching as 2023 uh, begins? I hate to say this, but illegal immigration is the gift that keeps on giving for Republicans. So I'm, <laughs> I'm going to clip that out of context and tweet it out. Yeah. Uh, shocking. The Texan news reporter calls illegal immigration a gift. No, I'm kidding. It'll, it'll be surprising to see how much more money the ledge gives to Operation Lone Star and what Abbott does with it uh, in the coming year, especially as the 2024 presidential election revs up. And um, I'm, I'm curious how Abbott's going to respond to that, if he's going to back Trump or if he's going to um, run himself or endorse DeSantis if DeSantis decides to run. I'm, I'm curious how Abbott's going to handle 2024, especially now that he's I've been given another four-year term, and DeSantis has been given another four-year term in Florida. But both both men have made illegal immigration and border security major issues in their campaign. Um, it scares people, uh, the illegal immigration does, and particularly it angers conservatives. And I think that uh, the legislature will address it again um, and uh, will will pass bills to continue to clamp down on human trafficking and uh, drug trafficking. They passed a fentanyl bill last session that increased the penalties for uh, fentanyl trafficking. That legislation was authored by uh, Senator Huffman. So we'll probably see some more legislative response to the border crisis. And uh, Abbott will probably have a lot more to say on it. And I don't know, maybe he'll get more aggressive. Maybe he will uh, come around to the thinking of uh of declaring an invasion and and deporting illegal immigrants with state resources. He's gone over and over the risks that he believes uh, come with that. But there are those who say that the risks are not uh, as serious as the risks of not doing it. So it, it will be interesting to see how much further Abbott takes Operation Lone Star, how much more aggressive he gets with illegal immigration and how far the legislature goes to fund his efforts as well. Absolutely. We're going to go in alpha. Oh yeah, Matt, go for it. Well, I was just going to add into that, Hayden. I think it'll be interesting to see if the severity of the humanitarian crisis at the border causes um, Democrat lawmakers to face any kind of pressure from their base to come to the table. 
on the issue or whether or not it's just going to be, you know, a, 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 a non-starter, continue to be a non-starter for issue for them. But it's getting progressively worse and kind of an interesting example. Abbott was out with a, a letter a little while ago, um, you know, talking about the upcoming freeze that the state's going to be under and how there's thousands of people in El Paso without, you know, necessary shelter and supplies and imploring the Biden administration to provide you know, resources for, for all of these people. Uh, and it, it's quite awful. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see if that, if that starts to have uh, any kind of um, an impact on the democratic electorate base that, that trickles up and translates into some sort of um, action on the, on the other side, rather than, you know, forcing Republicans to have to go to more and more, outside the box thinking avenues to address the border. So yeah, interesting thing. Particularly when Texas Democrats have such nuance in their voting habits, uh, particularly in South Texas. I think that's a great point. Matt. Um, we're going to go alphabetically here. Holly, what were, what's a, what's something that you're going to be watching going into 2023? You kind of talked a little bit earlier, but give us a, give us a sneak peek of what you're thinking. Sure. You know, the big thing in this area is that we will have mayoral elections here in Houston. Um, you know, most populous city in the state. Arguably, what happens here is very important to the rest of the state. Uh, Sylvester Turner is uh, term limited, and he is completing his second term as mayor. Uh, he's been a very resilient politician, despite multiple scandals. And, uh, you know, some there was a, one of his senior aides pled guilty to federal uh, public corruption charges, but and has resigned. Um, and there's, you know, a lot of concerns about, you know, some housing deals and things like that. Not, not really terribly unlike what uh, is being investigated on the Harris County side of government. Um, but uh, it'll be an interesting election to watch. Probably the the money front, front runner, if you will, right now is State Senator John Whitmire. And speaking of Democrats who've held uh, chairmanships um, on the Senate side, Whitmire's been uh, a chair of the, the Senate Criminal Justice Committee for, for years. He's actually been in the state legislature, I think, since the 1970s. So he's he's kind of out there in front. But, uh, you know, depending on the, the, the feel of the or the mood of the electorate, if you will, there's also, you know, a stiff challenge coming from Chris Hollins, who is the former interim Harris County clerk. Um, he's very popular locally. Um, and, uh, you know, he could be a, a, a stiff contender. And then there's also a former council member and a local attorney. Um, but this will be one to watch. Houston, you know, has this sort of odd election cycle and uh, unique election uh, procedures going on. And uh, all 16 members of the uh, the council will be up for re-election as well. So we'll be looking at some robust debate and uh, talk about some of the issues that are plaguing the city and everything from infrastructure to funding. The The city has used um, uh, ARPA funds to plug some, some pretty significant budget holes. And so it's going to be incumbent on these mayoral candidates to come forward with some some realistic proposals for how to manage that going forward. And uh, we'll just, we'll just keep a close watch on it here at the Texan. Seeing how, like you said, the momentum shapes up behind those two candidates in specific will be fascinating. I'm very excited to watch it and fundraising will be a huge part of that, which we know Whitmire has incredible fundraising jobs. So we'll see Absolutely. what happens there. Holly, thank you so much. Matt, what about you? 2023, what do you got your eyes on? Well, um, <laughs> 
I think it's just going to pretty much be dominated right off the bat with the legislature. Um, I'm going to be watching the first couple of months of the session to see uh, kind of what priorities shape up from the lieutenant governor, the governor, the speaker amongst the big three, see what kind of impact uh, the political parties priorities have. And um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what uh, what direction that uh, the session takes. I think we'll probably get a pretty good feel for, for what the big issues are going to be pretty soon. And then, uh, uh, yeah, after that, um, I'm, I'm hoping that 2024 politics with the White House and all that good stuff will well, at least hold off until Sine die, and so that so that we in Texas can get our exciting session out of the way. Because too many big, uh, too many big distractions all at once. Uh, just just too much. So um, yeah, <laughs> just seeing what direction the legislature is going to take, and, uh, and 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 then we'll traverse over into the twenty twenty four politics. That sounds about right. Wonderful. Well, gentlemen, happy new year. I'm excited to, to get to work with y'all for another year. It's wonderful as always to, I don't know, sit around and put commas in places where y'all are already such subject matter experts on what you do. That's all I do. I just sit around and put commas in places. You guys make my job so easy, but thank you for your Oxford work. Commas, that is. That's absolutely correct. Thank you for that distinction. <laughs> we must have the Oxford comma. <laughs> that is incredibly important. Um, but regardless, we're grateful. Folks, again, if you have not subscribed to The Texan already, we ask that you do. Go to the Texan.news today and make sure you're subscribed. If you subscribe, you also get wonderful emails in your inbox each morning with the top stories from each day, which is a very healthy, um, little fun little tool. So we love it. And I take advantage of it because I forget what I published <laughs> the previous day. Folks, thanks for sticking with us. Again, we have blathered. We appreciate you listening and happy new year. Merry new year. Thank you to everyone for listening. If you enjoy our show, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you want more of our stories, subscribe to The Texan at thetexan.news. Follow us on social media for the latest in Texas politics and send any questions for our team to our mailbag by DMing us on Twitter or shooting an email to editor at thetexan.news. We are funded entirely by readers and listeners like you. So thank you again for your support. Tune in next week for another episode of our weekly roundup. God bless you and God bless Texas.